shirt front, Mr. Putin. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> because I want the to do more. you slowly. If you don't vote for the Liberal National Parties, then Anthony Albanese will be the Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowds Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and tonight, as always, I'm joined by Joel and Rory. So how are you two tonight? Yeah, very good. It's been a, a long week of politics, just a long week in general, and pretty disappointed by the debate yesterday. Yeah, uh, I'm still still recovering from that debate. <laughs> yeah, I think the debate hangover is very real um, and it's a bad hangover, that's for sure. But we might start with some non-Australian news tonight because there was an election over the past week and as a result, Sinn Féin is now going to lead the Northern Ireland uh, Northern Ireland's parliament um, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, a massive change in, in Northern Irish politics there. Um, you know, Sinn Féin, the, the party of the former IRA in some ways, uh, got some issues with violence in the past, but are looking to, to govern in a more responsible way now. And the question is, what does this mean for Irish unification? What does it mean for Northern Ireland being in, in uh, the UK and Northern Ireland in, you know, and Ireland in the EU altogether? It's yeah, a massive, this could have massive ramifications throughout the world. Yeah, uh, Chucky, Allah, our day will come. Uh, I come from an IRA family, uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm quite happy about this. Uh, yeah. I, I see no reason why, uh, why, why Northern Ireland should not eventually return to the Irish Republic. Um, the, 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 board, the border was drawn by, by an imperial power. I was enforced by genocide and violence. I need to come down. Um, for, it, belong, it belongs to the Republic by, uh, by, by moral right, I would say. Yeah, and I think that this is, of course, a long time coming. Um, look at decades being the troubles and even going further back. But I think that this is very emblematic of the chaos that Brexit has caused um, and people not wanting to be separated by from their families by a hard border because there are plenty of people that live in Northern Ireland that have family members in the Republic. And, I mean by law like they can't have a soft border um on the border of the two countries but everyone agrees that it shouldn't be a hard border no matter what um and it's never gonna not be complicated and ultimately unification is the actually simplest solution to it despite what uh, the brits will tell you <laughs> But we might move to what was a pretty big week because there were plenty of debates to go around. We're really only going to focus on the leaders' debate later on in the episode. But new polling came out on Sunday night, one poll from Ipsos and one from News Poll, and things are looking worse and worse for the coalition. Um, we'll start with the Ipsos poll. It is probably the second biggest poll that has been run since the election's been called. The other one was also an Ipsos poll, by the way. Um, and the coalition's just taken massive losses. In When it comes to primary votes, they've gone down three points, down to 29%. Labor's gained a point to 35%. Um, the not knowing unsure votes are staying pretty much the same. The big other gain, realistically, is that the independent vote is rising. Yes, this is a, an incredible poll. 
from a labor perspective, I saw it and was was shocked. I thought there's no way this can be can be real. Um, what is it? You know, 43, 57, 14 points. That's that's massive. That's bordering on, you know, biggest election wins in Australia of all time. Um, this poll, if you go on the ABC, uh, ABC's election predictor has Labor winning 30 seats. Uh, that decimates the coalition down to about 45. They lose pretty much everything. I think Scott Morrison will be there pretty much by himself if that were to happen. So, you know, a massive, a massive poll. The news poll, not quite as as good for Labor. Still a, an improvement there, but, you know, not not the 14 points that, that Labor's looking for. But as you said, Jackie, that independent vote on the rise. It's, as I said last week, it's looking like Kuyong has gone, uh, Goldstein, but yeah, it's it's all it's all falling apart for the Liberals, isn't it? Interesting thing about the news poll is that if the Liberals win from this point on with the news poll this unfavorable two weeks out from the election, that would be unprecedented. Not to say it can't happen. Uh, of course, still can happen. Uh, unprecedented things happen all the time. Uh, but it is certainly not looking good for the Liberals in that respect. Um, I, I still find myself experiencing this this uh, this ineluctable pessimism. I think that um, you know the, the polls looking good for Labor it, it, it is all there is to say. I think also people still because everyone wants to bring up 2019 and ooh scary. It was a lot closer in 2019. So uh, day a few days before the election for 20. Uh, sorry. Uh, at the exit poll of the 2018 election, it was a 52-48 to Labor's favour. Mm. That was four points. The news poll poll is saying eight points. The news poll poll last time never got out to eight points. It always just was outside the margin of error. This is like blown the margin of error out the water by five plus points. Um, so I think that the pessimism and realistically fear that some people are having is probably undeserved when it comes down to seat by seat basis yes there is a reasonable fear but I look at these numbers and I go there's no way that Labor doesn't hold the power in the Senate um, as the big thing it's as to whether they're going to pick up these key seats in the house slash are these liberal safe seats going to go to independence like we're thinking they will yeah so what I've been looking at is there doesn't seem to be a seat, like a marginal seat that Labor currently holds that I think they're going to lose. Uh, it looks like they're probably going to hold on to everything there and the Liberals will lose seats, obviously, to those independents and then maybe some to Labor as well. So I, I literally can't see any path to victory for the Liberals here unless it's in some kind of minority government. But even then, like, there's no independents running against Labor candidates. Um, I just... I just don't see how the uh, how Labor doesn't pick up at least two seats and the Liberals lose a few. I think this this election's almost over, and as you were saying, these polls are well outside of that margin of error. Like if you these margin of errors are, are three and a half to four and a half percent usually, that still gives Labor an eight point lead in that Ipsos poll. So that's a that's a massive win, and I don't think Scott Morrison did himself any favors in that debate either. So we'll see what the numbers look like next week after people have had their say on, on what was a pretty, uh, I don't know, disgusting kind of hour performance by both of them. But I think I think this election, it's getting closer and closer to being called. 
I think that the big thing that is starting to emerge that most people are agreeing on is Anthony Albanese should emerge from this election as the Prime Minister of Australia. Um, it's in what form? And it's a lot of people still believe it is going to be a hung parliament form, but I think everyone's figured out the independents are not siding with the Liberals. Uh, and the only way that they will is if Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce are no longer leaders of their respective parties, which means... For Australia's benefit, <laughs> in some regard, that means that we should get a moderate leader of the Liberal Party rather, <laughs> rather than a Peter Dutton as the leader of the Liberal Party following this election, pretty much regardless of how close or how spread out it is. Because, like, just Scott Morrison cannot lose this election and stay prime minister, uh, stay uh, leader of the Liberal Party. Yeah, 100% right. But I think the problem is there that, you know, Frydenberg might lose his seat. Um, <laughs> Mr. Potato Head, Peter Dutton looks like he could lose his as well. So there's, as we've said every week, there's no real options there for the Liberals. Even if there were independents that wanted a Liberal minority government, I just don't see that happening with enough of them. I think like Allegra Spenders, the most right wing of those independents in terms of like economic stuff. And even, I don't think she would be going a Liberal minority government. So yeah, I don't see how Labor doesn't, doesn't take the Prime Ministership. Yeah, I think we can probably expect a strong restructuring of the Liberal Party if they are to lose this election, because, man, um, the, the, the heads of the party, the big wigs of the party, they, just, they don't seem to be that popular with the electorate, so I'm not sure, if they, I'm not sure how they're going to bring those to any future elections. Um, but, yeah, it uh, should, should be interesting to see how they, how they cope with that in the, uh, the very likely event that it does happen when they lose the election. But it's now less than two weeks to go and early voting began on Monday, um, which we haven't really seen anything come out of the early voting beyond preference cards. Um, but it makes it feel a lot more real for a lot of people. And considering we've had journalists trying to catch Albanese out or people trying to catch Albanese out on Q&A, um, Scott Morrison's front bench basically hiding and no one wanting to really campaign together um we're in for an interesting final two weeks and i mean i guess it started last night as far as the last two weeks are concerned with the debate which i mean i think we can all agree it was terrible it was the worst debate i've seen since the republican debates of 2016 like the the yelling over each other the arguments the panel not being able to control anything the host's not been able to control anything. The questions were horrific. It's just all around a, a terrible debate. Um, who would have thought Sky News would have done a better job? Like, at least their debate was was civilised. Their questions weren't as crazy. And I think I pointed this out after the original debate. Channel 9 and Channel 7, you know, they've got a profit motive there and they want people to tune in. And part of that is asking, you know, ridiculous questions. Yeah, there's just such unproductive, unfair questions that were responded to in an equally unproductive and unfair way by the participants in the debate. I feel like very little good came from that. I don't think we got much of a much of a sense of what the, or what these parties and people. Oh no, I suppose we did get quite quite a good sense, but uh, not in the way that you probably uh, want from your potential prime ministers. No, um, I think additionally, like as far as the panel and the moderators are con uh, moderator is concerned, 
they made it worse um, when they should have been able to make it better. And it's not only with Sarah Arbo, who was the moderator, um, not being able to get both Morrison and Albanese to speak within the time frame, but also like they she often interrupted a minute and a half into them speaking rather than 60 seconds. But also the journalists that were on the panel constantly interjecting while they're in the middle of answering a question. It's a debate. It's not a press conference. Um, and, I mean, to quote Scott Morrison, you don't control the press conference regardless. They need to be able to answer the questions that they are being asked. And Chris Yulman was probably the one that was the most guilty for it, was just letting both of them only get like four or five words in and then being like, but can you guarantee it? Can you guarantee it? And the answer is no, they can't. And anyone with a brain, whether they're super into politics or not, knows that the politicians cannot guarantee some of the promises they're making. 100%. Like there's a war in Ukraine at the moment. That could explode into something much bigger. You can't guarantee anything. And like Chris Yulman journalist is a strong word for him a liberal party talking head i think would make more sense uh the questions he was asking and you know the way he asked them yeah, are ridiculous his his framing of questions is extremely right-wing um yet he's the chief of channel nine's news like there's questions to be asked there i don't think it's it's all that surprising that those questions were being asked and it's not that surprising of the coverage you get throughout the election when you have people like that in charge. But, yeah, the, the, the overall debate, Scott Morrison, you know, the idea that these two candidates had to commit to not telling a lie during the debate beforehand was a bit silly. Like, what are they going to say? No, I'm going to lie the whole time. It's just, it's just dumb. Why would you need to ask that question? Scott Morrison's not going to say, yeah, I'm going to lie the whole time. This is all rubbish. Um, don't listen to any of it. Like, they're trying to run for election. They're going to pretend everything's true, even if it's not. And then you get questions from the panel that are just, you know, silly, like, what is a woman? It was going to happen eventually. We praised Sky News for not doing that. That was the one of the best things they did about that debate. Um, they didn't bring it up when it was probably at the, when this kind of Catherine Devs and, you know, women in sport question was at its, at its peak in this election cycle, but, you know, Channel 9 went right down to the bottom of the barrel and, and pulled that, you know, terrible question out. And I think it was answered fine by both of them. They can't really say anything else, but it's just, it doesn't need to be spoken about. Yeah, I, I certainly groaned very audibly when that question was announced and I was, I was with my parents at the time. They will be like, well, what, what, what's going on here? Is obviously they don't understand the, the underlying implication there and what's, what's really going on. Uh, yeah, it was a really disappointing question. Uh, it was merci- it was mercifully brief. Uh, yeah, I-, I can't say I was happy with the answers given, um, but they were, of course, rather transphobic answers, if we're being honest. Um, and Scott Morrison's answer, uh, being a member of the female sex. Uh, this could include, yeah, the, the, well, elbows is more the dog whistle. He said um, adult, uh, adult human woman or something adult, he said adult female yeah and scott morrison said a member of the female sex and that's where i was like adding sex in there is in particular where the dog whistle is because it's like not separating sex and gender which a lot of people do use um to define is that being a woman is more associated to gender than sex 
Yeah, but but all, adult human female is also pretty pretty clear. I missed uh, the human part. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, he didn't he didn't say it. He just came a bit close to it. Um, so yeah, they also Scott, Scott Morrison's answer uh, could include non-human creatures. So uh, if you are a female dog or a horse, then you can expect to be protected by the, by, by, by the little government the little government in that respect. But I don't know, just very silly question. At least it was short not an unexpected question at this point like especially with how this campaign has been um they're very frustrating um I do think using sex as a distinction within it is more what I take an issue with than Albanese adding adult in which is still weird and unnecessary I don't know how you do answer that question to be fair to both of them without pissing off without making transphobes angry um because if you say someone that identifies as a woman they will freak out (laughs) and like go off on a tangent about how like they're supporting children getting groomed or supporting abuse in bathrooms which is not actually a systemic problem currently um but again really really bad question really really expected from someone that works for 2gb though (laughs) Yeah, 100% right. Um, yeah, the, I don't think there's a way you answer that question that's not going to annoy people. Um, you answer it the way both of them did. It's going to annoy people on the left. I think it probably annoys less people, though, than if you give a, a more long-winded answer. Like, you'd probably get out of Adam Bant if you were to answer that question. So um, I think there's a right way to answer that question politically and there's a right way to answer it from a human level. Uh, I think they'd probably like just get the question over with probably the best way to to do it move past it don't put it up for debate um just leave it but yeah I think that question is just emblematic of of many terrible questions throughout that debate uh Chris Yulman's question on China was particularly bad uh in my opinion it was just just silly and then there was another question asking Scott Morrison if if he's ever seen corruption now that question in itself while it provides no nuance and is a yes and no answer what scott morrison said was was pretty funny to be honest with you he he just said no i've never seen any corruption in the liberal party mr morrison have you seen any corruption on your side of politics in your time and if so what did you do about it no i haven't never no wrongdoing no never happened in the liberal party at all i haven't seen that no uh we've talked about corruption every week on this show um, I pointed out the Chase's 146 points of Liberal Party corruption last week. Go check those all out. Um, Scott Morrison, what is he What is he doing? Like, the way you answer that question is to say, uh, yes, I've seen it. Yes, I've called it out. Um, and yet, yes, we got those people kicked out of Parliament. Like, that's the best way to do it. Or to say, I haven't experienced it, but I know it exists in the party and we're trying to get rid of it through whatever their version of a federal ICAC is. But the answer of just no is just a lie. Yeah, and you would think that he would know that one of the popular perceptions of politics by just the average person is that it's corrupt. So most of the people who are going to be trying to win over here are going to think, oh, our politicians are corrupt, parliament is corrupt, the whole the whole damn thing is corrupt. Uh, so by just denying it so blatantly like that, I think he's not doing himself too many favours. 
I also just like you're also the same way that Albanese is a part of New South Wales Labor, you're a part of the New South Wales Liberals. <laughs> like if there is a state where there has been scalps from politicians for corruption, it's New South Wales. Like Gladys Berejiklian, while she hasn't fully officially fallen for corruption, she did have to resign for being investigated by for corruption. Labor's had countless things. There's a reason why the New South Wales government isn't very well trusted. Um and I think that that's kind of why Albanese handled that question better. Whilst he didn't say, yes, there is corruption in Labor, he said there has been problems with it on all sides, but to the effect of, like, we've got to figure out a way to deal this, prevent it from happening, but also prosecute it when it does happen, um, which I think is what most of the public would agree with rather than saying, no, there is no corruption in my party, which it clearly is. Yeah, the ICAC is going to be a massive part of this election. Uh, it gets talked about you know, every day by the Labor Party, at least, and the Liberals are kind of trying to pretend that it's not an issue and pretend they're they're for it when they haven't, you know, haven't really supported anything and didn't allow any legislation to come before the House of Representatives in the in the three years they've been in charge under Scott Morrison. So the ICAC is it's pretty clear what side is winning on that, and. It's, it's why Labor's you know, 14 points up in the polls, right? We've seen consistent corruption and, you know, there's a, there's a party promising to get rid of it or at least investigate it. Whether you believe that or not is another thing, but they're at least saying they'll, they'll sort it out. I think also Morrison bringing up that, like, oh, uh, Labor hasn't actually written legislation for ICAC yet and it's, like, two pages long or whatever, I mean, to me at least, I don't know about you guys, but it makes sense that they wouldn't have written it yet because it would look very different if they were in government, for starters, but also whether they wrote it in the past three years or waited until they were officially in government, uh, in the past three years, it was never going to even get put on the floor. And that's what Albanese tried to say, but Scott Morrison, of course, and it was basically the part of the night where it got quite shouty, is just kept interrupting and kept being like, but it's only two pages, blah, blah, blah. Use the piece of paper as a prop because we know Scott Morrison loves props. Um, it, it's just like, it was one of those points where it was like, I mean, I think most people believe that the Helen Haynes ICAC model is what's going to end up going through regardless. Um, and maybe that's what Albanese actually needed to say was we're supporting a legislation that's already been written, but we are going to adjust it. Um and I think that people that know about it at the very least would be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the other big blow from the debate, uh, in, at least towards Scott Morrison, was when they had the opportunity to directly ask each other questions, Albanese brought up, he asked it in a very long-winded way, but basically, do you think that all Australian workers should receive the minimum wage of, what, $20.33 per hour? And Scott Morrison's response was, it depends. Um the minimum wage in Australia is $20.33. Should all Australian workers be paid at least the minimum wage? Well, it depends. If um, which, that was one of those moments where I was just like, you what? Yeah, I had a, a similar reaction. Um, it's an easy, an easy way not to get attacked to just vote. Like just to say, yes, everyone should get the minimum wage. That's what it's there for. Um, 
is he correct? Is Scott Morrison correct though? Like people under the age of 20 don't get paid $20.33 an hour. Um, younger people get paid less money. But what this question really was about was the gig economy, um, you know, Uber drivers, your food delivery drivers, that kind of stuff where people are, you know, independent contractors that are getting ripped off. Um, they're getting paid in some cases, $10 an hour to do full-time work, making, you know, poverty wages. And that's, that's what this question was really about. Uh, and it's what Albanese attacked him on afterwards. It was a, a big loss for Scott Morrison, I think. Yeah, uh, Morrison probably revealed his true colours there a little bit, I think. Um, this has certainly become a soundbite for the Labour Party, but I think it's a quite justifiable soundbite. Uh, Morrison revealed his true colours in the sense that Morrison probably uh, doesn't want the minimum wage to be at the point that it is right now. Um, maybe on some level, he doesn't want a minimum wage. We can't really tell. I don't want to speculate too much. But obviously, if you are an economic liberal, uh, you believe the market can set the can set wages appropriately based on how much they are worth in the market. Um, of course, this has sort of been debunked over the past 30 years by economists such as David Card, who won the Nobel Prize the other year. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I think Morrison revealed his two colours. Uh, I think he's sort of figured out that the gig economy is easier to disrespect than normal workers, uh, the gig economy and agricultural workers, I should say. Uh, whereas a country who sort of decided uh, that these people are worth less for their labour for whatever reason, um, like mainly classist reasons. But yeah, um, yeah, no, not, not much else to say really. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you bring up agricultural workers because Albanese tried to and Scott Morrison's response was, do you mean foreign workers? Yeah. And it's like, it says a lot about um, how bad the agricultural industry is to work in that we essentially force um, people that are on tourists working holiday visas um, to go work on a farm and pick fruit because um, it's a lousy job and in this country regardless of whether you're a citizen or not it pays terribly um, and they make less than I think it's a dollar an hour in some situations like it's that bad um, and I mean I think the bringing up foreign workers part of it is additionally weird I don't think that you should be earning less just because you're not a citizen in this country and I think most people would agree there's definitely some conservatives that think that we shouldn't have people that are not from not born in Australia even working in Australia full stop but that is an absurd take and results in brain drain in this country because people that were born here will just move overseas because there are better opportunities overseas in some situations um but it's just it was an easy question to not necessarily get a win on. It was an easy question for Labor to get a win on, it turns out. It was an easy question for the Liberal Party not to take it, for the Liberal Party to not take an L on. Um, and I don't know why anyone in his team didn't say, hey, if you get asked about minimum wage, just say, yes, I think that Australian workers deserve to get paid the minimum wage. Yeah, I think... Uh, you alluded to it there. I think part of this, part of it's a race thing, right? Um, we know a lot of these people in, in gig jobs, whether it's Uber or uh, fruit picking, uh, are overseas, come from overseas, whether it's Pacific or India in a lot of cases. And, you know, Scott Morrison's quite happy to, to, to dig into those people and 
you know, make sure they get paid less for what is uh, tough work, especially fruit picking. Part of it, there's the farmers. They're also just taking advantage of people. Um, like the, they'll pay them by the hour when the picking's good. And then when it's bad, they'll pay them by, by weight. And, you know, no one can win in a system where you can pick and choose how you pay people depending on if it's going to make you money or not. So it's all, it's all just a bit terrible and it just leads to these, these terrible terrible jobs for people that, you know, aren't paying money. And another area where, where that was kind of brought up was aged care with people not getting paid enough there. And Scott Morrison said something. This was, this was the biggest one for me when he said he blew the whistle on aged care. He's the prime minister. Like he could have fixed, he can still fix it now. There's no reason it can't be fixed, but he hasn't. He's chosen not to. And he's going to this election having not fixed aged care and not running on fixing aged care. Uh, and to, for him to say he blew the whistle was just firstly disrespectful to the workers and the people that, you know, are in these aged care homes that are living in that that one word, neglect. Um, and it was, yeah, yeah, terrible from Scott Morrison. It's just disingenuous as well. Uh, no one believes that, that he's the whistleblower here, the nurses, the nursing assistants, the, the residents in these aged care homes, they're the people that blew the whistle. Especially considering that aged care in this country has been hollowed out by the, privatize, the privatization efforts of largely the Liberal Party. Uh, we can see from a 2021 study last year uh, that found that market forces just don't seem to work all that well in aged care for a variety of reasons. I'm happy to provide that study to anyone who wants to tweet at me or whatever. Um, yeah, so look, uh, we have fairly simple solutions to some of the problems of aged care. It's just that implementing those, just stop, stop, stop passing the buck around and lying about blowing a whistle or whatever, just, just get it done. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so much to it. And I think that along with him trying to take all this kudos for blowing the whistle on aged care because he called for the Royal Commission, um, he then continually brought up that Labor has said that they are going to have 50-something reviews um, if they get elected, as though that that's, like, a bad thing. Um, it's not... It's a bad thing if they do nothing with those reviews. But if you do 50 reviews and actually listen to the advice that is given from those reviews and make the changes that need to get made, then go for it. Pledge 50 reviews. I hope that this country is in a better place reviewing things shouldn't be an insult because there are a lot of things in this country that have basically gone to shit because the federal government has said that's not my problem the private sector can handle it or that's an issue that while constitutionally is actually my problem it's a state issue um and if they keep doing that then everything does need to get reviewed um and whilst it doesn't make for a particularly productive first 18 months in office it means a lot gets done in the second 18 months here in office yeah i think scott morrison needs to ask himself why there needs to be 50 reviews there needs to be 50 reviews because of this government essentially destroying the aged care sector, privatising everything. Uh, we know that, that healthcare can't be privatised. That doesn't work. And aged care is effectively an extension of that. Um, so, yeah, these reviews are important, obviously. And, and uh, you know, we need more of them, if anything. Yeah, reviews, yeah. Get, get, get infer about what's going wrong, pretty, pretty simple mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, it, was, it was somewhat funny to see him making such a big deal out of it, but like it's, 
it's not it's not a really effective talking point like you need to review stuff if you're in government it's not you should probably do plenty of reviews as well more than 50 even why not but yeah strange to see from morrison yeah to me it's it comes across as very much like um defensive or having a chip on your shoulder because it's your time in office is getting reviewed if you reviewed your time as treasurer is getting reviewed your time as prime minister is getting reviewed um, and it's not going to work out favorably for him as we've seen from this entire election campaign and how fed up people are with Scott Morrison. But we might move on to what was the second to last topic of the debate, which was a little bit to do with China and the Solomon Islands. But Albanese finally used the weapon that has been in Labor's arsenal for two and a half years now, I think it is. And that is bringing up the fact that if the Liberal Party is so strong on policy when it comes to China, how did they allow the Port of Darwin to get sold to a Chinese company that has such strong ties with the Chinese Communist Party? And I'm not going to lie, I actually cheered when he brought that up because I'm just so sick of foreign policy relating to China getting brought up. Um, and one party claiming to be stronger on it than, when the other, than the other when the Port of Darwin is just such a prominent issue. <laughs> yeah, a massive issue and one that's, you know, been boiling under the surface for a while and, you know, as China expands and, and looks to get more power throughout the world, it's going to become bigger and bigger with a what is a 99-year lease. Like, uh, unfortunately, we can't get out of that now. Um, it's, it's all signed. China's got a little bit more power than us on the world stage, so we can't tell them to, to just disappear. Uh, obviously, a terrible, terrible thing to let happen. Um, you know, the the liberal, the, the federal Liberal Party might not have let that happen in terms of actually selling themselves. The, the territory government did there, but uh, the, the federal government has all the ability in the world to over overtake uh, territory decisions. They were quite happy to do that when the ACT legalised gay marriage for a week. They made sure the Territory uh, weren't allowed to do that. But when the Northern Territory sells a port to China, Liberals are nowhere to be seen. So uh, just it's it's literally the worst policy, uh, foreign policy failure uh, in this country's history, in my opinion, to let other countries own what is one of the most important um, you know, ports in the in the country. Morrison is definitely relying on this popular perception of the Liberal Party as opposed to substantiating this with actual policy decisions, I think. He's relying on this idea that people view the Liberals as the National Security Party, as the party that will keep Australia safe. We've got blokes like Dutton who will, you know, uh, stop the boats or whatever and challenge China in a very provocative fashion. Um, but... You know, it, obviously, as we discussed on the podcast prior, it's just not there. Uh, the Liberals have, have lost the Solomon Islands. Uh, they've lost the, the Port of Darwin. There's not much there in terms of strong foreign policy uh, successes. I think Albo was on was almost onto something when he started talking about John Curtin and how John Curtin was the Prime Minister who saw us through World War II. I think he got a little lost in the weeds because I'm not sure if he established that historical connection from John Curtin to like the Albo and the Labor Party of today. I would have liked to have seen a bit more on that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, proving this idea that the Labor Party are continuing this legacy in some respect. But, you know, uh, it was 
an attempt was there also i think also when you talk about that though there is also the very easy parallel that can be drawn to the exact same time period being menzies who screwed up so badly he had to create a new party um which was the liberal party of australia and so like this is a government that has screwed up so badly and there is a perception that we could be going into war we don't 100 percent know yet we need someone that is john curtain-esque we need labor because labor has taken us through a world war previously um meanwhile someone that is essentially the hero of the liberal party despite the fact that he has one of the biggest foreign policy screw-ups leading up into world war ii um it's just one of those connections that is additionally easy to make. If you're going to bring up John Curtin, bring up Menzies and bring up Menzies prior to World War II because it does hurt them despite the fact that they're technically not the same party at the time. And uh, bring up those letters uh, Menzies wrote being very, uh, <laughs> very, very praiseful of Adolf Hitler. Or lying about us to get in, uh, lying about South Vietnam begging for us to join the war, that sort of thing. Like Menzies, whilst is a hero to the Liberal Party, a lot of the stuff that can get brought up is pretty negative. And I mean, this is the Liberal Party where the treasurer idolizes Thatcher and Reagan and people don't like those two either. Uh, I I disagree in some ways there, guys. I think that Australia doesn't have as strong a political connection to its history as the US does. Um, I think That's most it. people, uh, if you're running a campaign in the US, most people seem to know which president belonged to which party at a minimum. I think in Australia, that's much more blurred. And part of that is those swapping of parties, um, you know, new parties cropping up, Labor splitting in the 30s, all that kind of stuff. So you know, I don't think the link between, like making a link between John Curtin and Anthony Albanese is uh, even possible, even if you can see it pretty clearly for people that understand these things. I just don't think the history... Uh, is taught well enough in terms of Australian Australian politics for most people to understand that. And what a debate is, is trying to appeal to, you know, the million people that tuned in, not 50,000 that might understand that history. So while I agree with you both, I just don't think, like, it's worth spending time on for a debate like that. Yeah, I, I, don't, though, I do think that, like, this debate didn't appeal to that a million people that tuned in. It was terrible yeah. and yeah. no one enjoyed it according to social media. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. Um, I th- but I think the main thing is if you're going to bring it up, you need to establish a connection. I'm not sure if it's the best thing to bring up in the first place. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure how many people know who John Curtin is. Um, maybe, maybe they heard about the history class a decade ago, perhaps. But um, yeah, I reckon, I think the main thing is if you do bring up these historical figures, you have to back up the fact that you are continuing their legacy somehow. And they do try to do that, at least Labor does, with um, Hawke and Keating. But it's easier to do when you can trot Keating out every so often and be like, look, he supports us. Like, we've got a bunch of his protégés on the front bench of the party. But we'll go to the end of the debate, which... uh, had probably the most ridiculous question of the debate, which was to do with uh, sport remaining on free-to-air TV, which is really just, hi, we're Nine News, we're the Channel 9 network. Can you please not take the rugby league from us? That's 100% what this question was. Um, You know, it's a a big 
uh, viewer getter every week for for Channel Nine, the Rugby League. Uh, obviously, Fox has made a play to get all of those games where where Nine doesn't have them all, and that's that's what the question was really. There, you could go deeper into this in terms of uh, the anti siphoning laws regarding sport in Australia and what's actually being broken and not being enforced at the moment. Uh, but you know, we're moving to an age of of streaming and. That's how sport's going to go. Um, the question, as you said, Jackie, it's just for Channel 9 uh, so they can pick more viewers up on the Rugby League and sell some ads. Just self-serving, basically. I don't have too much to say about the answers to the question, uh, to the question but the question itself, it's very interesting to me that this is the question that was asked. This is the question we went, we spent two to five minutes on instead of a question on poverty or climate change, or even or even like policy in regards to Indigenous people, which is, there's nothing on, not even not even a mention of last uh, last night. Um, I feel like there's so much more important stuff you could have spent that time on, uh, and instead we got a question about sports that just serves to um, uh, God, <laughs> and then serves to uh, soothe the the fears of Channel Nine somehow. It doesn't do anything. I don't think either one answered the question particularly well or particularly poorly either. Um, but, I mean, by the end of the debate, uh, there was a Nine News, like, voting website that just would not work for anyone. Um, and <laughs> from to the point of you couldn't even, like, press your answers. Some people couldn't even get the actual answers to come up. And there was at one point they were saying, for the what do you think the results of the election will be? And the options were coalition, Labor, coalition. Now that was a glitch, presumably, because um, that third one was meant to be hung parliament. But like it's pretty bad when yes, a million people are watching, but only a hundred thousand people access the website, that it doesn't have the bandwidth for that when you would have thought that they were hoping that this was going to be the biggest, uh, sorry, the biggest ratings getter for Sunday night this week, despite the fact that it started at 8.45. Yeah, uh, obviously having that many people all go to a website at once is is difficult to deal with. Um, Australia's got, you know, as we all know, the worst internet in the world um, and it's not getting any better. You blame the Liberal Party for that one as well. But yeah, Channel 9... It just, it's, they should have just linked a Twitter poll or something like that. That would have been much easier. Um, Twitter can actually handle something of that size where Channel 9 clearly cannot, but, of course, they wouldn't have had to, to pack it with Google ads like they did. So it's just, yeah, silly. Nine News can't run a website and they can't run a debate. Uh, I suppose the only thing with the Twitter poll is only, what, like less than 20 or so percent of the population use Twitter. Uh, so you're going to get a pretty skewed result but even then that probably would have been better than the website we had set up last night so i'm, I'm not even opposed yeah i mean twitter polls would have just had bots that's the problem is they're super easy to rig with bots um but i mean do we actually think the debate changed anyone's mind uh no i think as we said in the first debate this debate was i actually if it changed anyone's mind i think it's to vote for neither of these parties yeah. Um, like the fighting, no one likes the fighting in politics as much as it's entertaining and lets us talk about it for half an hour. Um, it's just a bit, it's a bit much for people that don't really like it. They just want issues talked about. 
but that's not what we got. So I don't know, maybe some more third party stuff. So that could be good for Labor in the end if they go to these deal independents. So yeah, I don't think anyone won. I don't think anyone got their mind changed. I think it's all pretty, pretty insignificant in the, in the scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, Nine news one and uh, the third parties one, I reckon, is uh, is, is the, the the outcome of last night. Yeah, I think that the people that won the debate were the people that didn't actually watch it. Um, and I think the biggest losers were the panel and Sarah Arbo as the moderator because she should never moderate a debate again. Um, just absolutely atrocious performance. Um, but if we do have to pick one of Morrison and Albanese, who had the better performance overall in the end? <laughs> or who got a hit off, I guess, is the real question. Yeah, so I think Albanese, uh, I guess, won the debate in those terms. You know, Scott Morrison's stuff on aged care, on the minimum wage, and uh, just lying in general. He's not going to win any votes. But, you know, Albanese didn't win anything himself. So uh, I think Albanese, you know, a very, very close one. Yeah, God, it, it's hard to say. I, I came out of that debate not really feeling like either party had won. Uh, yeah, I just felt like a bit of a mess. And I was, I felt very vindicated when the polls came up to that 50-50 split at one point. I think that did skew, skew towards Albo at some point. I don't remember when. Um, but that 50-50 split certainly made me feel quite quite vindicated in my, my, my indecision. Um, I, if, if you had a gun to my head, probably Albo. Um, mainly just because I think Skirme will suffer from the answers to the, the minimum wage question. Um, and to the, uh, the, the, big, the big corruption answer as well, which is just, that's going to turn a lot of people off, I think. So, Yeah, I think that the reason why Albanese even actually wins this debate is he's the one that asked the minimum wage question and he's the one that trapped Scott Morrison into that terrible answer. Um, because, like, a journalist could do that and a journalist could probably craft the question a little bit better than Albanese did, but it is a huge political win that when he got the opportunity to directly ask Scott Morrison about the minimum wage, that's Morrison's answer. And he quickly fired in with interjections um, about Morrison's non-answer in a way. But there's one more debate left, presumably. Uh, it's going to be on Channel 7 on Wednesday night and it's going to be at 9, 10 p.m. after Big Brother, which is great for everyone. Um, but I guess the real question is why do we think that the debate, the third debate or any debate for that matter, um, oh, sorry, any leaders debate for that matter isn't going to be on the ABC as of yet? Because uh, the Liberals won't go on the ABC. I think that's pretty simple, right? Scott Morrison has avoided Q&A like the plague. Uh, he won't go on 7.30. He won't touch the ABC except to cut their funding. So yeah, the Liberals like to stay away from it. I think he, he learned that from Tony Abbott when he banned every member of the Liberal Party from appearing on that on that channel for, for his prime ministership. So, yeah, the, the ABC, we're never going to get it. But I'm quite looking forward to the Channel 7 debate. I can't wait to see the cash cow host. Yeah, so it seems like Skomo has got the, got the ABC derangement syndrome uh, <laughs> spread to him by, by Tony Abbott, presumably. Uh, you know, you should... Exceed. There is an expectation if you're a politician, you should appear on your public broadcasting network, particularly for a leaders' debate. Um, of course, liberals feel there's some kind of bias there. Um, uh, I, I don't think there's, there's much to suggest that, really. Um, but, yeah, 
whatever. I think also, like, a debate where, I guess, Laura Tingle's the moderator and maybe, unfortunately, Lee Sales and David Spears are the ones asking the questions. Like, that's going to be a debate that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. It's also not going to be at a ridiculous time. Um, and then additionally, there are going to be substantive questions that people actually want answers on. Um, and in a way, it's probably not even really going to skew like greatly to Labor that much, but there are going to be questions that appeal to Greens voters, um, in particular, the environment-based questions that just don't get asked on the public, uh, on the commercial broadcasters. Yeah, there's a reason the Liberals don't like the ABC. They ask difficult questions. It's pretty simple. Uh, but we might move on from the debate uh, onto a big bit of news out of the US this week, and that was the leaked Supreme Court decision regarding overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, so that is, and sorry, as, as well as Planned Parenthood v Casey. Um, and I mean, it's a huge, huge law as far as uh, the United States is concerned. It will not outright ban abortion. I think that that's what some people have thought is that it's just going to ban abortion nationwide. What it will do is result in a lot of trigger laws in a lot of red states that will ban abortion. And so there will be, I think it's going to total like 20 states where it's not completely illegal um, from any portion for anything, even if it is to save the mother's life. Um, but I mean, I guess a lot of people would say, you guys are Australians. Why are you talking about it on an Australian podcast? Because in a lot of ways, it does affect Australia. <laughs> yeah, um, we've talked about it every week. American politics affects Australia. Uh, it takes a little bit to catch up, but uh, there's no doubt that it happens. The Liberal Party here is has got more right wing over the last decade. Uh, they followed the US Republican Party there. Um, abortion here, like in South Australia, wasn't decriminalised officially until last year. Uh, obviously, abortion's a little bit more open here in terms of like being able to get it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but this is a horrific decision. Uh, if it goes ahead in the US, it looks like it'll go ahead. I wouldn't see them changing uh, a decision this late, but you know, this is going to affect millions of people, not just with with abortion, as you said, Jackie, but Planned Parenthood. Um, in the US, obviously, we've talked about their healthcare system. The profit motive doesn't work, and Planned Parenthood offers the only healthcare for a lot of people. And you know, if that gets shut down in terms of federal funding, which is what this decision will do, uh, people will die. It's pretty simple. Um, the people that will die are poor people. Rich people won't die. This won't affect them. And part of that is why, you know, politicians haven't bothered legislating this over the past 50 years. Um, you know, the Democrats have had at different times majorities in the, the House and the Senate. They've had the presidency. They have that right now. And we're still not seeing legislation about it. They don't care. Um, they think they can raise some money out of it and they will raise money out of it, a lot of it, but they won't legislate on it. They'll wait and wait and wait and hope a Supreme Court justice dies or retires and then hopefully get someone in in a decade. The issue is that the Republicans, are, like Donald Trump put in 45-year-old justices, they're going to be there for 40, 50 years if they stay the amount of time that you know, Ruth Gader Bins, uh, Bader Ginsburg was there. Uh, it just, it's just a, a screw-up by everybody uh, in the US to allow this to happen. Uh, the Supreme Court 
decision getting leaked, I couldn't care less if stuff gets leaked like that. Uh, it's better it gets leaked and, you know, people can actually do something about it rather than, you know, this being an overnight decision where everything gets shut down and, and people die. And, and that's what this will, this will happen. Like people are going to die. Poor people are going to die. Um, it's just, it's one of the worst decisions the US could have made. And, you know, the Republicans have been pushing towards this for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, it, it's frustratingly inevitable. I think um, the, the Dems lost three of the, uh, of the, Supreme, of the, Supreme, the Supreme Court seats. Uh, that there's around, um, you know, abortion, a very divisive issue in the United States um, at various times over the past 50 years. There's been a majority of people for it, a majority of people against it. Uh, it tends to be pretty even right about now. It's just one of those issues where common ground, that there's none. Uh, it, it kind of, you know, not to get too philosophical, uh, this is a politics podcast, but there is uh, just these, these very severely contrasting uh, ontological perceptions of what a person is um, a, a, across like the Democrat aisle and the Republican aisle, or I should say the pro-choice versus the pro-life aisle. Um, and there's no way to reconcile those really. Um, yeah, uh, Dems haven't done much about it, probably because abortion is one of the biggest single issue uh, swinger, swing topics of uh, in, in the country. Um, I think you have that the really big uh, evangelical portion who will just vote for whoever wants to ban abortion so that's how they were won over by the republicans of course um yeah it's pretty depressing um i think also uh another reason it's inevitable it was always built on a pretty rickety legal foundation i think um that interpretation of uh of article 13 is a bit you can tell they it was a bit rushed. They were trying to respond to the uh, the the pro-abortion movement of the '60s, and they sort of just did the, the easiest way that they could. Hopefully, we see some kind of stronger uh, legal basis for abortion in the near future, um, because I think the right to privacy argument uh, it's a bit weak. Go for something like right to bodily autonomy or whatever else you can muster, because you're going to need it if you want to uh, survive the the coming uh, pro uh, pro-life onslaught. Yeah, so I'll say it's not 50-50 at all. It does not have, the overturning of Roe vs. Wade does not have 30% support in any US state, and that includes oh, yeah, the yeah. red states. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, 50% of politicians are for it, but no one, like that's a specific class. Um, and even then, they're not actually for it because if, dare I say it, their mistress gets pregnant, they're going to get their mistress to terminate the pregnancy. Um, it is horribly unsafe for women. It's also against other religions. Um, and there is a lot of talk coming out of the Jewish community in particular in the United States um, because they've been pretty firm on the fact that pro-choice is the only actual way to go because of how Jewish law considers a baby or a fetus, but also um, how it affects the mother's life. Um, because if it puts the mother's life at risk, whether it is economic health, actual physical health or mental health wise, it is basically a requirement for the pregnancy to be terminated. Um, and I think that that will get spoken about a lot more. It's definitely a talking point um, currently on TikTok. 
But just also on top of it, it's like if you think that this isn't going to affect Australia, um, the Assistant Minister for Women's Affairs, Amanda Stoker, has been known to go to pro-life rallies. Um, This is the, like, (laughs) it's the Assistant Minister for Women's Affairs. It's not just some nonsensical portfolio item, despite the fact that Tony Abbott tried to take over the portfolio item when he first became Prime Minister. Um, That is someone that is heavily influential in the federal government decisions for 50% of the country. And that's their take on it. You think that if the Liberal government doesn't hold federal power, it doesn't influence things. In a lot of ways, it is very lucky it is a state issue in Australia because then it could be something that swings back and forth depending on whether it is Labor or a further growing more right-wing Liberal National Coalition. Yeah, yeah I, I, I still have a Gallup poll. Um, it's 49% identifies pro-choice, 47% identifies pro-life uh, amongst the, the, the sample of the thousands of people I talk. Um, however, I should I should I should admit I should have been clearer when I was speaking. So that's just that Gallup poll. However, it should be noted that these terms are quite nebulous and can refer to a variety of things. So when you start referring to like specific moments of the uh, the fetus's development, people do tend to uh, change their opinions a little bit. So you'd have pro life people who identify as pro life, uh, who would be a bit more okay with like abortions within the first twelve or so weeks or something, I believe. Um, so yeah, just, 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 I just wanted to, uh, to, to flag that, uh, correct myself a little bit there. Yeah. I think that's an issue we've seen in America throughout all politics. Um, I remember if we go back to 2016 and 2020, um, in terms of, you know, socialism versus capitalism, people get asked if they're capitalist, you get like an 80%, uh, number and then, you know, you break it down policy by policy and it's, it's a very different answer. So I, I think that's just a, a label, but even then, I couldn't care less if it was 90% of people in favour of you know, pro-life. It's If you think abortion is a human right, which I do, then it shouldn't be up to the majority. Like We wouldn't put slavery up to a vote, would we? So it's it's just silly. Look, Democrats have failed massively. And I know like this is obviously Republicans' fault, all that stuff. They put all these justices on the Supreme Court. But it's the Democrats' job to fight against this stuff. And they're meant to be the party that cares about it. And they've let it happen. Some some basic planning during the end of Obama's term would have made sure that Donald Trump didn't get to appoint three Supreme Court justices. But what they wanted to do was give uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, a bigger legacy, let her stay in a couple more years. And now we have, you know, Neil Gorsuch and just Brett Kavanaugh and, you know, horrific people on the Supreme Court that are going to overturn this. Yeah. Why did they let that happen? They just, frankly, they don't care. The politicians are old. It's not going to affect them. Diane Feinstein is 180 years old, basically. Like she doesn't know where she is half the time. Apparently, she's literally a walking corpse, and she gets to to make laws about this. The Democrats, what they need to do is legislate it. It's pretty simple, just legislate it. And the argument is that the Republicans will overturn it. Well, they've overturned this as well, haven't they? So you've got to do the right thing while you're in charge, and then just keep making the case that it's the right thing to do. Well, and like I think part of the other issue is is this is actually a slippery slope situation. Is if they get away with overturning Rose versus Wade, there is talk that they are going to overturn um, the legalization of same sex marriage, and then additionally, there's talk that they are going to overturn the legalization and leave it up to the states regarding interracial marriage, which, like, 
it's that's one of those ones that does seem more absurd the same sex marriage one does not seem as absurd um especially if you read what is in this drafted um amendment but additionally it's like there's the Ruth Bader Ginsburg side of things where she should have retired and they should have just told her tough titties um you've done a good job you've had cancer what was it four times at that point I think um sit this one out because we might lose but they were so sure that Hillary was going to win um and then of course what happens is she gets COVID while having uh, quite serious stage four cancer and ends up succumbing to I believe it was the cancer in the end but at the same time like getting COVID when you're that sick with cancer it's it's not going to help you (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination um and that's a consequence of what the Democrats have done. Additionally, um, the Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, like they've already basically said that like they will not support a federal act regarding protecting abortion rights. Um, they have had time after time to do this. They could have done it during the Clinton years. They could have done it during the Obama years. Um, and now it's Biden with a Senate that doesn't do anything uh, with the House of Representatives that's pretty useless despite the fact that they've got a decent majority and we've already seen the republicans in the senate say especially mitch mcconnell that if they take over the majority again in the 2022 election which this ruling regardless of whether it is finalized by the 2022 election could actually change up what's going to happen because it was very much i was like the republicans are going to win everything in 2022 um Mitch McConnell said that they will not allow a Democratic nominee for the Supreme Court, um, regardless of whether someone dies or not. Like, they basically just said, we'll leave the seat open until there's a Republican um, president, which is insane for a, a variety of reasons. But when you already have a majority that doesn't really get affected, even if two Supreme Court justices die, you're allowed, you're able to do that, despite the fact that it's not Democratic at all to do that. Mm. single issue voters are some of the more dangerous voters going around and that's even like single issue voters when it comes to healthcare or climate change it's like if you're only focused on one issue what are you doing like there's more stuff and there's stuff that actually more directly benefits you less so healthcare but especially if you're older but climate change even a little bit if that's the only issue you're voting on maybe not considering some of the other policy um as well especially in the US system of doing things. But let's move on because I'm sick of talking about the US and it's actually depressing me quite a bit still. <laughs> but we're going to go to gaps of the week. Uh, and the first one is not from the debate. Actually, neither of them are from the debate, but it does involve Albanese because he had a question regarding the six points of NDIS uh, put to him. I think it was on Thursday last week. And he stumbled through the answer is probably the best way to put it and probably didn't even really answer it. Yeah, once again, Albo can't find the answer to her question. It's the second time this has happened now. and He doesn't have any memory issues. That's silly to suggest. But, you know, this, these things are hard to... Like, remembering six points of a policy and then having policies on literally everything is impossible to remember. That's why he has such a large a large team that, that can answer these questions. But the media doesn't seem to want to let him, you know, give these answers to the correct people. In this case, it would have been Bill Shorten. But we've seen it, you know, in every press conference, whether it's climate change, not letting Chris Bowen answer, you know, not letting 
uh, Jim Chalmers answer stuff on on the economy. So it's it's all just a bit silly. But Albo should have had the answer, I guess. But it's just more gotcha question stuff from the media who have not had a great campaign. Uh, the media have have not have not done themselves any favors in the public eye. That's for sure. Uh, journalism's about more than just asking people if they can remember facts. If you want to do that, go on the chase or different who wants to be a millionaire, something like that. So, you know, Albo should have had the answer, but the media should also ask proper questions. To repeat what I say whenever a similar thing has appeared on the podcast previously, I don't expect the prime minister to be an all knowing technocrat. I just expect them to be able to lead their party with some sense of stability, coherence and integrity. Um, I, just, I just don't care. Um, I think the best thing coming out of this is that there's been some good memes um, on Twitter, uh, but I liked the, a tweet by someone who, who uh, made a comment about Albo not being able to remember our, um, who was uh, Rihanna's versus Monster or something. I know, <laughs> I, I know I retweeted a tweet about Albo not being able to uh, recite Beowulf uh, in full by, by memory. I thought that was quite a good one. Um, so I think that's, that's been the highlight of this whole thing. Uh, certainly not the, the journalists. No, and I think that the two people that need to be able to answer that question in the country, like if they answer the question wrong and there's a problem, is Bill Shorten and Linda Reynolds because they're the only realistic options for uh, who's going to be the, who is going to have the NDIS portfolio item. Um, and the fact that he cops flack for allowing his treasurer, his environment, planned environment minister, Bill Shorten for the NDIS to be answering the questions. I find it really frustrating because I wouldn't have a problem with the coalition doing it either. I think that, as Joel said, the prime minister doesn't need to be an all-knowing technocrat. I wish that the prime minister, like both in both cases, they'd admit to just not knowing things rather than kind of bullshitting um, and stumbling their way through a non-answer that just makes me roll my eyes. Um, but the media doesn't allow for that is half the problem. And then also I think that there is a, some ego that plays into it. Albo tries and then I guess in the first, on the first day of the campaign, was it? Um, like just when I don't actually know the figure. Whereas Scott Morrison smarmily tries to smirk his way through an answer that no one actually thinks he understood what the question was a lot of the time. Um, and these gotcha questions are happening on both sides like Morrison is copying it not quite as much and not in the same way as Albanese is but is still copying these gotcha questions as well it's just that they don't get reported on whereas when Albo mm -hmm. makes a mistake it's three days worth of news stories um I don't think that this question really affects the election I also think that not many people knew about it is part of the thing journalists like to beat it up on Twitter um and maybe people saw a few memes about it, but I think people are more aware um, of what happened in the debate on Sunday night and maybe a tiny little bit of the debate on Wednesday between the treasurers, but that was also not something that anyone really paid any attention to. Uh, our other gaffe of the week involves a couple of members of the Liberal Party. They're not as well known. Um, and this is, I think, an actual like gaff it's just a silly thing that's happened because Vivian Lobo and Robbie Beaton are being investigated by the AFP for basically in their enrollment um as candidates not putting the correct residential address down 
Um, and it happening to one is a mistake. Some people might say two is too many for a coincidence. I just think it's playing dumb on both parts. Um, and I don't really understand how it happens either. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, I guess if you're a, you know, an LNP candidate, you've probably got I don't know, four or five investment properties, probably got a couple of houses, holiday home up on the coast as well. So quite easy to confuse which house you're actually living in on the day. So, yeah, I don't know. Pretty silly from, from both of these candidates. I think, you know, Robbie Beaton in Melbourne, it's not really going to affect the party too much there. I think Adam Bant's got that, that seat pretty well sewed up. But Vivian Lobo, he's running in uh, the seat of Lily in Queensland. It's Wayne Swan's former seat. But it only has a margin of just over one percent in terms of Labor holding it. Like he, there's a genuine chance he could have been the next member for that seat, and you know, the AFP is going to make sure he's not. Basically, you can't fill out these forms wrong. So I think that's over, and that's another seat the Liberals can't win. So you know, but overall, just silly stuff from the Liberal Party once again. Just check your paperwork. Get give it to the party. Make sure they go through it. It's all you got to do. It's the same stuff as the citizenship. Just it's not that hard to fill out forms correctly. Yeah, pr- pretty pretty basic stuff up. Pretty silly stuff up. Don't know how you get that wrong. Probably the number of, of investment properties, but whatever. Even then, like it's not that easy to check your enrollment details. Like <laughs> it's one of those things that can get checked and triple checked. Um, I I think it's uh, stuff up on the individuals part it's also a stuff up on the party's part um i feel like there's been more uh basically candidates losing their candidacy in this election than there was in 2019 i don't know maybe i wasn't paying close enough attention in 2019 but it feels a lot more prominent this year um and happening in obviously in this case one seat that doesn't really matter Adam Bant's not losing Melbourne. But then again, in a seat that does actually matter. Um, and it's not a minor party, like the one with One Nation and Advance Australia or whoever the other party was last week. Yeah, just silly. Um, this is it's going to lose the Liberals a potential gain there that, you know, a seat that had a big swing uh, in the last election. So, you know, pretty silly from what's an interesting name in Vivian Lobo. Uh, We might move on to key seats now, which we've got three interesting seats. Uh, We're going to start with Eden Monaro because that was definitely one that had a bit of a change up in the past three years because Christy McBain uh, won the seat in a by-election in 2020, I think it was in the end, uh, and it was super close, 50.39 to Labor to 49.61 to Liberal. Uh, as far as state politics is concerned, this is the area that also encompassed uh, John Barillaro, the former national leader, former deputy premier, um, his state seat. But it has been a Labor Party seat since 2016. Um, it's just that that Labor area within the seat seems to be ever so slightly stronger, at least for the past two elections. Yeah, so being in Canberra, this is a seat we're literally surrounded by. If you look on the map, it, it goes down to the coast and then goes up and around to Wagga and, and all those kind of areas. So it's 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 one of the biggest seats in Australia, definitely one of the biggest ones in New South Wales. Um, interestingly, this seat kind of goes against the current government. So like when the Liberals 
win government. The ALP, ALP seems to win this seat. When the ALP wins government, the Liberals seem to win that seat. I think that's probably changing now, though. Um, as you said, Jackie, it's it's growing more towards Labor. I think there's more people from Canberra moving a little bit further out so they can actually afford property. Uh, everything's pretty expensive in Canberra, obviously, and you know, out in Queanbeyan or even if even as far as Goulburn, it's a little bit cheaper. So people, there's more you know public servant Labor voters that are moving out that way, and you know, it's a seat of of two pretty big Labor strongholds in around Queanbeyan and then on the south coast of New South Wales. And then you go f- a bit further in towards, you know, New South Wales, Wagga area, and it becomes pretty heavy coalition territory. So it's a, it's an interesting seat. And I don't know if we get some more growth in this area, I think one that will be due to be broken up at some point with some redistribution. Yeah, um, if there's a Labor swing, which the polls are indicating there will be, I don't see much reason why even Monaro wouldn't go Labor. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that it's just like, it. whilst the margin was really slim in 2019, I think that this is even the Monaro portion of the electorate is probably really fed up with the nonsense that has come from their state member um, that they'll just, you'll have a couple of people even there that will swing Labor, whereas the areas of the electorate that were already pretty much Labor strongholds, they're going to stay Labor strongholds. I do agree with the sentiment that this is a seat that needs to get split up a little bit. I think that the three big seats uh, in New South Wales could be argued for that a little bit everywhere. But in Monaro, there's more and more people coming into the seat. Um you can split it in half and it ends up being one Labor seat, one Liberal seat or one national seat even. Or it could get split differently where it ends up two Labors or two LNP seats. Um, I think, though, Christy McBain's going to hold this seat quite potentially convincingly. I think she's going to definitely extend on her lead. Yeah, and I'm 100% with you on that. This is a, a Labor, becoming a Labor stronghold, in my opinion. Yeah, should go Labor. Uh, our second seat is in Victoria and I mean we're talking about a familiar part of Melbourne at this point because it borders on Kuyong as well and that is Higgins. Uh, so it was held by the Liberals uh, in the 2019 election by 2.6%. Katie Allen is the current member but there's been a little bit of shifting with the boundaries. Um, so some of the land that is traditionally Labor land has gone into Kuyong um, and then also other seats around Melbourne, which might actually make the argument that whilst it's a marginal seat, it could sw- uh, swing further towards the Liberals. But it's not actually Labor that is in question. It's Greens that could be the big winners in this seat. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So. 2016 election, the Greens were the second second biggest party in this this seat. It moved towards Labor slightly, a little bit more in 2019. But you know, if that Greens vote goes up, especially with you know this blue green stuff with with disaffected Liberals not wanting to vote Labor, but for some reason happy to vote Green, which I don't understand. Um, there's no reason, you know, some Labor preferences and some preferences for some other minor parties, maybe some independents around there could get them over 50%. So, you know, Katie Allen, you know, she wins a massive portion of first preference votes uh, between 45 and 50. And then somehow, you know, Labor claws it back to be within 2.6%. So 
we know where the preferences are going in that seat and it's not the Liberals. Uh, in some ways, this is kind of a quirk in, in the preference system that we have that, you know, someone that's getting such a big uh, amount of votes compared to everyone else can could lose. But, you know, that's how, that's how the system goes. And I don't know, I think she probably holds on though with, you know, Kuyong getting some more Labor voters and some other seats around Melbourne. But this is definitely a trend in Victoria of the Liberal Party just just losing everything. And unless something changes there, I think, you know, Melbourne's going to be a, a very different spot in five years. Yeah, uh, Katie Allen, one of the, the wetter Liberals of the Liberal Party, very much moderate, quite progressive on a lot of these social issues. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why she's managed to uh, to get a hold in um, in this electorate. Um, I also I suspect that's also related to why the Greens are so popular because you probably have people within this electorate that are quite progressive on social issues, uh, maybe not as worried about the economic issues. I know it's a pretty wealthy electorate based on what I know. Um, so that's that's all the influence things. Um, and I think also because uh, Alan is one of the wetter liberals and the more progressive liberals, I think that probably will help her hold on to this seat. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see if she can um, if she can resist uh, the big the big leftward swing this election. It's a seat that we're probably going to know the result on fairly quickly, just as far yeah. as the first preference comes in. If it's between forty six and forty seven percent, I think that's when it could take a while for this seat to get called. But if it dips below 45%, that's basically that seat lost. Um, and the same thing is getting said for Kuyong and for Chisholm. Um, the first preference is clearly crucial in Eastern Melbourne at the moment for the Liberal Party and people aren't loving them at the moment. Um, the question is, is, is there enough people that have flipped that are Liberal voters that care about the environment enough I guess in a lot of ways to vote Greens because there isn't a strong independent in the seat. Yeah 100% it's it's one that we'll know as you said pretty quickly on that first preference vote so for me I think the Liberals still hold on uh, just I think it's one where they can actually maybe have a swing towards them um, that's depending on a few different factors and if this Labor swing is of 14 points is is actually legitimate that's for sure but yeah for me the Liberals hold on here yeah so I reckon I reckon Alan keeps it yeah I'll agree that I do think she does keep it in the end uh but the last seat we know that we will have a new sitting representative because in Swan in WA Steve Irons is retiring he's held the seat since 2007 so a fair run but there's been some redistribution within the seat. It's shifted from 2.7% to 3.2%, but it previously was a little bit of the Labor stronghold. I think he is indicative of WA moving rightward as the mining boom began. Uh, but Christy McSweeney is going to be the candidate for the Liberals and okay, and Zanetta Mascarenas is going to be the candidate for Labor. Um, it's definitely an interesting seat despite the widening of the margin, I believe, at least. Yeah, I think obviously we've seen the Labor Party uh, get very, very strong in WA. I think this is an, an interesting seat for a few reasons, just for, for the history nerds. This is one of the initial seats in that 1901 election. Uh, it's been around the whole time. Uh, Kim Beasley held this seat for a long time before he moved a little bit further south to Brand. And, you know, this, this area is somewhat like 
the previous couple of seats we talked about, it's got kind of a Labor voting area around Kalamunda and, and Belmont. And then you go to South Perth and Victoria Park and it's a very different story with some you know, some very nice uh, mining mansions that have been purchased in WA. So uh, an interesting seat for me. But yeah, Steve Irons, been there for the best part of 15 years and I don't know, he's 3% enough to protect the Liberals in WA. I don't think it will be. I think this seat's one that'll go. Um Hannah Beasley, the daughter of Kim, ran in the last election and couldn't quite get there. But, yeah, I think basically on what is a, a, a new field of candidates, I think the, the overall swing to Labor will, will pick up Swan. Yeah, I reckon the lack of incumbency advantage, uh, the, the, the Labor shift federally, and also just the, the state, the, the state local popularity of uh, McGowan and his Labor Party, um, it's all making it look pretty good for Labor for, for the, this one electorate, I reckon. Yeah, the only reason, I like, I can see it still getting held and being a very narrow hold, but the only reason that the Liberals could even really make a gain in this seat at all, as far as the margin's concerned, is if there was a more tangible uh, swing against McGowan in the past six months uh, than there actually realistically has been. Um, because whilst I think we've seen plenty of people complain about the WA government, we've also seen the, oh, like, we hate it, but, like, at least, you know, everyone didn't spend the past two years getting COVID, even though they all are now. Yeah, like, ten, they had 10,000 cases today. It's um, it's definitely on the rise. And just on Christy McSweeney, she is um, almost, yeah, so just on Christy McSweeney, she is, almost a clone of Michaelia Cash. They, if you listen to them speak, it's exactly the same, exactly the same cadence. And some people might like that, but for me, uh, it's a bit grating. And I, I think if people in the electric hero speak, I think they'll probably agree. Yeah, there's a reason why Michaelia Cash is in the Senate um, and isn't mm. going for an actual House of Reps seat ever. Uh, and that is because she's not actually particularly popular, personally speaking. Um, I do think it's going to go to Labor. I think that it's going to be very narrow, though, ultimately. Uh, and we might move to our last topic for tonight, which is please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Um, and... I mean, this is less attacking the individual politicians for a change. <laughs> For starters, we've got the times of the last three debates. Um, so there was the Treasurer debate last week, which was at 12.30pm at the National Press Club. So naturally, only people that actually really, really care about politics bothered to watch it at the time or re-watch it when they got home from work. Um the second PM debate was on Sunday night on Mother's Day at 8.45 PM. So again, whilst I think it's better than this final debate, um, it's the Sunday is probably the only redeeming factor to it. I think Mother's Day is also a hit to the debate's ratings because, I mean, except for me, probably most people chose not to torture their mums by making them watch the debate. And then the third debate uh, is at 9.10 p.m. on Wednesday, um, which is actually probably the worst time of the three of them. Um, but, you know, we've got to get through the whole episode of Big Brother. Yeah, Big Brother, the most important thing in the world, apparently. I know this 9.10 debate is going to be against uh, Jumanji on Channel 10. So if you want to watch that instead, jump over. Um, it might be a little bit 
more interesting. Robin Williams, obviously a great actor. Uh, but yeah, these these times are, are silly. Like no one's tuning into a treasure debate at twelve thirty, let alone you know a nine ten debate on a on a weeknight. Um, if we want to get people more invested in politics, you need to have these debates, you know, in prime time, somewhere where everyone in Australia can see them, and at, on days where people want to watch them. Uh, you know, nine ten on a Wednesday is not going to appeal to anyone really there's you know people have jobs to go to believe it or not so you know it just doesn't work for anyone and you know the media's stuff this up but you know part of it as you said big brother channel seven and channel nine have got to make their money right like they didn't run any ads during this this debate really i think there was one ad break in the middle there so you know they're, they're losing effectively losing money by doing this and you know that's why it's been pushed back to these times. You've got to get the the primetime shows in first. Yeah, I mean, works out all right for night hours like me. You know, I, I can just watch the debate, then you know, go go go, children. I think for a few hours, but ah, uh, yeah, these probably should be earlier. Um, they, they should be as, as accessible as possible, really. Hence why they probably should be on the ABC, but alas, whatever. Um, yeah, it's really weird timing, especially the, the treasurer debate, which should be a bigger deal. Twelve thirty on a weekday. No, no one, no one can see that really. Who's, who's gonna watch that? Um, yeah, just, just really strange. Um, really not conducive to good politics. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's reflective of the Liberal Party. It's the same of them not wanting to be on the ABC. They don't actually want to be seen. Um, that's why they won't be seen together a little bit. Um, Scott Morrison won't campaign with people in marginal seats because he's not popular. Um, he also won't have all that many others campaigning with him. Uh, in particular, yes, we see Jim Chalmers and Albanese together. We do not see Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg together very often. Um, additionally, I just, I mean, maybe if that debate the other night was at an earlier time. It would have been less ridiculous. I don't know. They both seemed pretty grumpy, probably past their bedtimes. They did have a big day leading into it. Um, they probably both individually have better performances at a 7 p.m. time slot. Um, 8.45 is pretty late. It finished at like 10, 10 p.m. on top of that. Um, mm. I hope this Channel 7 debate does not go like for another for an hour and a half. It's just excruciating um and i think we are going to emerge with the sky news debate having been the best debate at this rate because i don't have a lot of faith in this channel seven debate i'm not gonna lie yeah i think the liberals have obviously been hiding and scott morrison doesn't want to do any media but i think you know they're they're at the point of no return in terms of that i think they have to get out there and do this stuff now that if these polls are right eight points down at best 14 at worst um they can't afford to do this I saw the Batuta Advocate even tweeted out today that they can't get any Liberal MPs on their on their podcast, which, you know, actually reaches pretty much the same number of people as these debates. Like, they get a million downloads a week. So, uh, it's pretty silly of them not to not to go on and do that. I know Chris Bowen did it yesterday. So, yeah, the Liberals, they can't hide forever. Uh, but we might move on because with pre-polling opening, we get to see what the preferences are starting to look like. And, of course, preferences don't really mean all that much as far as those how-to vote cards are concerned. You as the individual still get to choose uh, who you vote for. So you can actually go Liberal 1, Labor 2. 
um, despite no one from either of those parties thinking that's a good choice. But at least in Victoria, um, the Senate preferences from the Liberal Party were certainly interesting. Of course, they had the Liberal Nationals as their first choice, but their second choice, despite claiming this entire time they were not going to do a preference deal with One Nation or the UAP, I think the UAP is second and One Nation is either third or fourth in their preference list. They are in their six. That's definite. <laughs> yeah, right-wing parties stick together, don't they? And I think, you know, that's what this has shown. And uh, I'm not all that surprised that the UAP is right up there for the, the LNP. I'm sure there's some kind of deal going on in the back like there was for 2019. Palmer will get a couple more coal mines and, you know, add to his billions and billions of dollars. Um, yeah, the UAP is a cancer on our democracy uh, in terms of the, like the money they, they spend. And this is why we need an ICAC and this is why we need, um, you know, public funding of elections and proper, proper exposure of donations. But, you know, that's a, that's a separate issue. I also noticed that Jackie Lambie has preferenced the LNP in uh, the house for the candidate she's running down in Tasmania. So I think that could have uh, some effect. I know Jackie Lambie is pretty popular down there and, you know, Tasmanians are a, a, a very different bunch. So whether people follow these cards is obviously a different issue, but, you know, it, it gives a sense of where the parties, I don't know, beliefs are at a minimum, maybe where their deals are, but definitely where, where their beliefs are, are more lined up with. Yeah, um, I, I didn't expect anything anything else in the was really. I thought, yeah, that, 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 that sounds about right. They, they will put those parties right there. Um, that, yeah, were pretty, pretty part of the course, I reckon. Um, an interesting one uh, in Victoria is that the Greens have put Victorian Socialists as their second preference for how to vote, which I think is a pretty, pretty interesting choice. Um, that's obviously going to be weaponized against them a little bit. That certainly makes sense. They do have overlap on a lot of key policy issues. So, Yeah, I think that the, it, it's that's one of those ones where it's like, yes, there's the overlap. Optically, it's probably not great um, for the Greens just because even when it comes to Melbourne University campuses, uh, the Socialist Alternative and the Victorian Socialists aren't particularly popular because whilst people might even agree with some of their beliefs and their policies, similar to the problem that a lot of us have with the Greens is that they don't actually want to do anything. They claim they want to do all this stuff and then they don't try to make policy better. Um, and I think that that's going to hurt the Greens because they've already got the sting of like being attached to Labor, but Labor hating them and them hating Labor as well. And then additionally, whilst it's not the United States, socialist is still a negative buzzword in Australia and People have tried to use that against Albanese in recent weeks, be like, you used to identify as a socialist. It's like that kind of stuff. And it just, it's a buzzword that will turn people against you, especially moderate liberal voters that are leaning more towards voting for the Greens instead of Labor because of climate policy. Um, again, how-to vote cards don't really matter that much. Um but at the same time, it's an interesting point of contention. Funnily enough, uh, there was a Jacobin article recently, Joe uh, Jacobin, uh, maybe, maybe controversial, but um, about how uh, it's quite, it's rather funny that Arbo is, um, uh, is, is like lampooned as a socialist or whatever. 
Uh, apparently, he uh, he killed the socialist faction of his uh, of his New South Wales uh, of New South Wales uh, Labor. So there you go, interesting little, little factoid. Um, I don't think I don't think second preferencing Victorian socialists will hurt Greens too much, really. I don't think it's going to win them votes, but I don't think people will care enough, particularly their base. Um, I haven't really seen anyone kick up too much of a fuss about it right now. I know some people do have, um, you know, the, the big stigma against uh, against SALT and so Socialist Alternative, uh, who are part of the Victorian Socialist Coalition. Um, I know, I know, I've had my, <laughs> yeah, a few run-ins with, with, with SALT over the years, but um, yeah, they, they certainly teach you how to look very disinterested when you walk by them on campus, at the very least, an, an important life skill. Um, but we might go to our last item on Please Explain, and because we can't really get away with not talking about Kuyong and the fact that Frydenberg's really scared of losing this seat, uh, it turns out from a job ad that was posted on Seek, he's willing to pay people $30 an hour to walk around with Keep Josh signs on their back for four hours a day. Um, I mean, it's good money, I guess, but... <laughs> Those are heavy boards. They're about seven kilos. Having that on your back for four hours. And then also probably just getting ridiculed by a lot of the people that you walk past, especially if you have to go down Glen Ferry Road right near um, Swinburne University. It's not going to be a fun job, that's for sure. I was just surprised they didn't turn this into an independent contractor job and pay them eight bucks an hour. Well, that would have been more the, the Liberal Party way to go, wouldn't it? I mean, 30 bucks an hour, that's a bit... That's a yeah. bit much. I saw, I saw a, sort of a um, funny comment on Facebook about this. So actually, on a Victorian socialist post, where someone uh, someone <laughs> suggested that that the Victorian socialists start paying sixty dollars an hour to not uh, hold up the uh, to not hold up the signs. That was pretty funny. Um, yeah, as as I commented before the show, it's amusing to see Frieden, the Frydenberg campaign taking inspiration from uh, the recent opening of the Fortress video game bar in Melbourne CBD, having people walk around with big signs. Uh, yeah, certainly worked out well for Fortress. Maybe it'll do do similar for Frydenberg, but probably not. <laughs> I don't think it's going to do much of anything. I think that this campaign has gotten uh, desperate in a way that is actually quite sad <laughs> to see. Um, it's funny if you don't want to vote for him, but at the same time, you're just like, ooh, this is sad. And he did debate Monique Ryan and he made a comment that was basically like, said that he feels like the only reason why he's going to lose his seat potentially is because people have an issue with the Liberal Party and not with him. Um, I think that is an underestimation of how negative his comments were during the pandemic um, and how much they angered people in Kuryong. And then at the same time, he's not wrong. <laughs> people really don't like the Liberal Party and a blue ribbon seat um, falling it's not, that's not a small deal by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, what I wonder about this is, so he's paying, he'll pay anyone, I guess, is the idea. But, like, people that need to take this job at 30 bucks an hour uh, are going to be, you know, not making great money in their usual lives, right? They're probably not going to be Liberal Party voters. So what happens when, you know, you're standing out there four hours a day, someone comes up to you thinking, oh, this is someone who knows something about the campaign. I'll ask them some questions. Like... Has, have they thought about that at all? If these people aren't being given, you know, campaign stuff to recite to people, then just holding signs up, what's the point of them being there? I mean, they're, they're probably Labor voters. They could be Greens voters. Who knows? 
they probably don't believe in what they're saying. So I don't know. It's just pretty silly. Get people from your campaign to do this kind of stuff. I'm sure you can find at least 10 volunteers that'll, that'll do this for you. But my question for you guys is how much would it cost you to, to do this? How much to hold up a Josh Frydenberg sign? I know you're in Kuyong, Jackie. It's not impossible that you could have to do this. How much <laughs> do you need an hour yeah, to go I out mean, there and hold a sign? More than I get paid in my day job. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, it's got to be upwards of 60 bucks an hour. It sounds like a horrible job. And that's not even from the perspective of personal bias. To be walking around with a seven kilo sign on your back mm-hmm. where you're going to have members of the public confronting you and being horrible to you, but then also asking questions where by the sounds of it, you're not going to get a whole lot of training. They basically said, give us your availability and please have a black shirt and black pants um, and you'll probably get the job. (laughs) Like if that's the take that is coming across in the advertisement, I mean, you need to be paying people a lot more money than you're offering. I think that they're going to get some broke uni students um, doing these jobs and some broke uni students are probably going to look miserable and, that's why they need people from the party. They also probably actually do need to kit these people out a little bit um, in Liberal Party merch. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't look like people are just getting forced to do it because they're wage slaves. I, I reckon I'd be waiting on that Victorian socialist counteroffer of 60 bucks an hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're pretty much at the end of tonight's episode. So Joel, Rory, do you want to share your social media handles? Yeah, at Rory underscore Dennis. Uh, keep up to date with everything that's going on at Edge of the Crowd there and yeah, a bit of everything else. Um, Joel W. Duggan on Twitter. You can catch me making some banger posts about my writer's block of poetry right now. So <laughs> tune in for that. And you can find me at Dodzy161 on Twitter and Instagram and even TikTok. Uh, this has been Edge of the Election. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Edge Election Pod. Uh, Edge of the Election is part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find Edge of the Crowd at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, pretty much any form of social media. You can also read any of our stories, be they sport, politics or culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.